0: 2 minutes
1: I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including Amazing Fantasy 15, you might have heard of it, as well as the annuals, which I still think don't count.
0: Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man proper, you may have heard of it, including the annuals, which I say count. But for me, Amazing Fantasy 15, whatever book that is, remains a fantasy. Thank you for joining us for the 10th and final episode of season six of the amazing spider talk. The show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe.
1: If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present and future, subscribe to amazing spider talk on your
0: favorite podcast app. This podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep our humble podcast going, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com, click on the big Patreon button, and consider joining our club. Every episode of the season features
1: artwork by comic artist Nick Cagnetti and is available to our Patreon members unlettered and in stunning high resolution. And every other week, we put out a new edition of our Amazing Spider Talk Substack newsletter, where we cover all the news about Spider-Man we can't cover on the show. Go to AmazingSpider.Substack.com to subscribe. It's all the news that's fit to print and not podcast about.
0: Who knew? (laughs) Well, in this season of the Amazing Spider-Talk, we're going back to the mid-80s one last time when the Amazing Spider-Man title was handed over to one of the most legendary creative parents in comics. And I say handed over, I mean like given and then wrestled out of their hands. And that is none other than the legendary Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. It was a time of immense change in the comics industry but together, Tom and Ron returned Spider-Man to its dicko inspired roots to create one of the most beloved runs on the title until they no longer could.
1: Yes, yeah, so as Dan keeps insinuating, on today's show, we're going to be talking about the end of the Tom DeFalco and Ron Frenz's run on Amazing Spider-Man, and essentially how it all came crashing down during the original gang war storyline. Gang war? What's a gang war? I've never heard of such a thing. Anyway... As we recounted in great detail during our trilogy of Hobgoblin episodes, the Spider-Office was in full-on turmoil that ultimately ended with Tom and Ron being fired from the book. The results play out against the backdrop of a gang war to create one of the strangest Spider-Man stories ever put to page.
0: Yeah, and Mark and I will be discussing the legacy of various gang war stories in Spider-Man's history, which have led us to the current gang war story that's currently dominating the spider-man line but if you'd like to follow along with our discussion by reading this gang war story we'll be discussing amazing spider-man numbers 284 to 288 these comics can be found just about anywhere they aren't expensive to buy as back issues they don't have like any first appearances of any major characters Uh, They're available in various collections that have been put out over the years, and most specifically, they're available on Marvel Unlimited as well as Marvel's digital store. So again, that's Amazing Spider-Man numbers 284 to 288. So Mark... You know, this season is is kind of strange in that we covered the Hobgoblin of it all last season, along with our Stern discussion, which so much of what we're going to be getting into today really deals with. The muckety-muck, behind-the-scenes stuff, the interplay over the identity of the Hobgoblin. So I think it's probably safe to preface this episode by saying if you haven't listened to our hobgoblin trilogy of episodes from season five of the show probably best to go back and listen to those first so that you know the kind of like major players in this story and how they all clashed and more a bit of the background of where this gang story finds itself in the history of spider-man do you think that's a safe bet
1: Yeah, 100 percent. Although I do hope that, you know, we can kind of walk people through it again in in a non-repetitive way, since there is kind of a different wrinkle to this whole storyline when it's told through the lens of gang war versus the Hobgoblin reveal that we talked about last season. Either way, you should always go back and listen to our episodes, but the Hobgoblin trilogy would certainly help a lot on this one. But Dan, why don't we just get into it and and hope everyone can can catch up and 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 keep pace with what we're about to get into?
0: Sounds like a fair plan. So I said you should read Amazing Spider-Man number it's two hundred and eighty four to two hundred and eighty eight. I don't know if that's a recommendation, Mark, and certainly we're going to be getting into our opinions on this. But those are the ones that we're talking about, uh, and they released September nineteen eighty six to February nineteen eighty seven. I was but a several-month-old child at the time, and as such, had my pull list at my comic shop ready to go. How about you, Mark? (laughs) Uh, I mean, actually, I mean, as
1: someone who's a few years older than you, Dan, I mean, these these comics are only just before I started getting into Amazing Spider-Man in real time. I mean, we're talking about... Seven or eight issues off, depending on wh- what you really want to count as my first issue. Could you imagine though, if this uh, like if the first issue I pulled out was, you know, Daredevil in a fat suit in two eighty seven? I mean, it, it would have really blown my mind, and and maybe have not made me the fan that I am today. But but let's talk a little bit about the background here. Like you said, September eighty six to February eighty seven. This is this is published out, and you know, I think what is most significant about this, as we said in the intro, yes, it's the end official end of the Defalco and Friends run and that they were fired from the book and, and and I think more importantly to that, it kind of marks like peak editorial chaos and you know what some might consider the castle intrigue at Marvel. Uh, not only led to the end of Defalco and Friends' run, but uh, actually a few months later upended Jim Shooter's reign as editor in chief of Marvel, which I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that this was all kind of connected. Not saying that Jim Shooter and Gang War uh, G- Jim Shooter left because of Gang War, but it it, it just kind of gives you a sense of. Just how chaotic the House of Ideas was during uh, this period, because, you know, the the guy that kind of redefined Marvel for that era was out and fired as well just a few months later. It's it's worth noting, Dan, that the first few issues uh, say as much. Gang War was a Tom DeFalco plot. Actually, it was. Uh, what? How does it read in the first issue?
0: It's it's story and ideas by Tom DeFalco and Ron. Frozen. Yeah, it, it it specifically says story by Tom DeFalco, script by. Jim Owsley and storytelling by Ron friends, like try to parse that, Uh, you know, like that, that is, that is one of the more confusing credits pages I've ever seen. For sure. I mean, the bottom line was, you know, as, as, as Tom
1: and Ron discussed when they were on our show earlier this season, I mean, they were a true collaboration in terms of storytellers. And clearly this was their story that was meant to kind of, I don't know if it was meant to, truly be the, in their mind, the end of their run, but it became the end of their run. And then as it is, it kind of ties up a lot of the ideas that were introduced earlier in their run. So it kind of makes sense that they would be both considered the storytellers here. I did want to note here Jim Owsley, as he's known here, the Spider Book editor, we've talked about this many times before, he is now known as Christopher Priest, who was on our show during our 200th episode spectacular from Terrificon. Christopher Priest, of course, also famously wrote uh, Black Panther in the vein that mo- more or less inspired the movie version of Black, pa- Black Panther. I mean, he, is, he has had a very successful comic book career. This is kind of one of the darker periods of his career. To that end, a lot of the the details from his perspective are found in the uh, his online blog called digitalwebbing.com, and it's the article, Why I Don't Talk About Spider-Man. We've talked about this article before, especially a lot during the Hobgoblin episode. Of course, Christopher Priest did talk to us about Hobgoblin, too, in real time, but you know, for all intents and purposes, he never talked to us about Gang War. We couldn't get him on for this show, so we're going to be referencing his blog post a lot.
0: Which is to also say it may not be an accurate portrayal of the time period given that you know it's from his perspective you know as much as that article really is a mea culpa like hey i screwed up you know even in person when we talked to him for episode 200 he told us different stories that are run counter to what he wrote in that blog so what really happened behind the scenes here i think I think it's fairly, like, reputable. Like, uh, most of the claims he makes here seem believable. Maybe less of the, like, personality stuff that we're going to get into. The kind of broad mechanics of what was happening inside of Marvel at the time seem fairly honest and, frankly, brutally honest about himself from Christopher Priest slash Jim Owsley, which basically is also, like, a, a documentation of how much he clashed with DeFalco and friends and how apologetic he felt like that he was passing the buck that was hitting him onto them. And, you know, it's a really worth a read if you, if you want to check it out again, digitalwebbing.com. Why I don't talk about Spider-Man. Uh, but Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about that working relationship? For sure. And I,
1: I would just add to that, you know, in terms of the overall veracity of, of Priest's uh, recollections here. I mean, we did not ask Tom Moran about about uh, Priest during our most recent interviews with them, but certainly in past ones, uh, the topic of Christopher Priest slash Jim Owsley has come up. I, I don't get the sense that all is forgiven and uh, and people have moved on. I think there, there is a, still a lot of pain and hurt involved with the players here. It's, There's no sense that this was kind of happily resolved and that you know Priest's claims were, uh, I guess, fictitious, at least in terms of how badly he admits he treated the two of them.
0: Well, I mean, not not to pull back the curtain too much on our dealings with everybody, but in that 200th episode, and we've recounted this story before, we interviewed Christopher Priest, and when Ron found out that we interviewed Christopher Priest, it's probably one of the only times I've seen him. It might have been mock-upset, But he did seem genuinely kind of hurt that, you know, we associated ourselves in some way with Christopher Priest. And I also I ultimately don't think he's actually upset with us in any way because he knows that we're just looking to click for clarity. There's definitely real, genuine hurt that lasts to this day, as you were saying. They were uh, several aisles separate from each other. And, you know, I imagine to them it. St- you know, felt still way too close in, in some regards. Yeah,
1: I mean, usually when you go to these shows, you see the creators who work together, kind of associate with each other. We did not see that, <laughs> during, that yeah. during that show. <laughs> so it's worth noting. So in this, in this blog post, you know, uh, priest talks about the fact that, you know, when he was the editor of the spider books, you know, he was a young guy, you know, this was his first big job in comics and, you know, he was hired directly by Jim Shooter. Now, Jim Shooter's reputation at Marvel was that of kind of a, a, an authoritarian taskmaster. You know, at the same time, it was one of Marvel's most successful periods. So, you know, we could we could do the ends justify the means. That's another discussion for another conversation. Maybe we could talk about that in season seven, Dan. I don't know. Shooter notoriously was known uh, for really coming down hard on creators who, who handed in work late. He was very much about the deadline and meeting deadlines. Priest basically would go to Shooter and complain about the fact that he felt that the Falco and friends were missing deadlines. And, and Shooter basically gave him carte blanche to, to deal with it the way he felt he needed to. And in Priest's mind, the solution to this was because he, you know, I think he did have some, you know, some respect for Tom and Ron, especially Tom, who is a very senior person at Marvel himself. And frankly, one of Shooter's handpicked people when, when Shooter came over in the in the late 70s. He wanted to pull them off of Amazing Spider-Man and instead offer them like a quarterly book called Sensational Spider-Man. And Priest kind of compares this to what Spider-Man Unlimited later became in the 1990s, kind of like a digest of, of stories so that way they could kind of work on other projects at Marvel, still get their fix of Spider-Man, because both very apparently loved working on Spider-Man. Priest says he ran this idea by Shooter, who was like, yeah, sure, sounds good. And he called uh, DeFalco into his office to break the news to him. And Tom was just outraged by it. And, you know, in in Priest's words, it ended their friendship. Of course, Tom and Ron refused to do the sensational book. Uh, do you want to pick up what happened next, Dan?
0: Sure. Yeah. This is kind of like the most insane part is that like Shooter then calls the priest or Jim Owsley into his office. You know, uh, I, one of the interesting details, you know, to, to to suggest the closeness of this relationship in the blog post, Jim Owsley, or Christopher Priest acknowledges he never went by the name Jim. He just fashioned his own name after shooter so that he could be more like Jim. Here's a Jim coming to another gym and, you know, like doing everything he can to please him. And so he tells him like, Hey, he fired Tom and Ron and shooters like, Hey, I know I approved that, but I didn't actually think you'd do it, you know? And and so like he, he was kind of pissed at him. Like, You know, and and you know, priest got felt like he was put in a a bad situation, which is like, wait a minute, you told me to do this now. Whether that's true or not, because that could be a very easy way to like avoid, you know, blame for this. Which ultimately, I think, priest accepts. It's it's pretty insane. You know, Tom, who is one of Shooter's first editorial hires after Marvel, goes into Shooter's office and threatens to quit Marvel altogether which then forced Shooter to fire Priest as the spider editor and then brought in Jim Salakrup, our friend of the show, as the new group editor. So it was like one firing led to another firing, <laughs> you know, just this rotating chairs of Russian roulette that echoed its way down the line. Tell us a little bit about what happened next. As, like I guess, a punishment of sorts, like Priest had to kind
1: of like clean up the st- clean up the mess of Amazing Spider-Man and that started with this gang war story so you know he he had these loose plots from DeFalco and friends and he you know basically took over scripting duties for these five issues and then he brought in artist Alan Kuppenberg for the majority of the issues to do the pencils but then it it is worth noting in Amazing Spider-Man 287 the penultimate chapter aka the fat daredevil chapter (laughs) I'm going to just keep calling it that Dan Uh, he, he He gave uh, a young new artist named Eric Larson his first Spider-Man pencil work. Of course, Larson is another friend of our show uh, and would go on to have a much more famous creative run with David Michelinie in the 90s. But this is uh, where he got his start on Spider-Man. And, you know, it's it's interesting to note that even in the way that Priest wrote, you know, scripted this out, it's clearly like a culmination of a lot of the threads that the Falco and Friends had introduced, including like some of the storylines involving the Hobgoblin and the Rose and Wilson Fisk and Richard Fisk. You know, unfortunately, you know, Priest changed a lot of the major plot points throughout this storyline from what the Falco and friends intended, at least according to what the Falco and friends have said themselves on past episodes of this show. We got what we got as uh, a result. And then, you know, just just to kind of further put uh, a cherry on top of all this madness, Dan. You know, we said that this—the last chapter of this of this comic was published in February 1987. By n- April 1987, so two months later, Shooter is officially out of Marvel. You know, basically, the publisher b- brings Shooter in because he's like this sick and tired of the drama, the fights with editor, the fights with creative. You know, the 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 this the bad reputation that Shooter was was bringing forth to Marvel. Uh, and then it's worth noting that Tom DeFalco then becomes the
0: next editor in chief of Marvel. <laughs> so there you go, and, and 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 but also for a very short lived run, uh, correct, you know, true for for its own various reasons, correct, yeah.
1: correct. But it's just kind of funny how this all. You know, boomeranged around.
0: Is, is is there anything, any other context
1: you want to bring up before we get into the comics themselves, Dan? Did I miss
0: anything? I mean, I think we just have to talk about this plot because it's it is crazy town banana pants, as Peter Parker always says. I I was amused by the fact, Dan,
1: that I think it was either Twitter or or, or who knows what. Um, but uh, one of, one of social media recently promoted the the current gang war storyline vis-a-vis this story as being the quote-unquote original Spider-Man gang war. and And that's not really true. I mean, you know, that again... Uh, Spider-Man 900 was going to be the greatest stor- Sinister Six story since Amazing Spider-Man number one, right, Dan? So, I mean, you know, I'm, <laughs> yeah.
0: just, I'm just shocked and
1: appalled by this lack of accuracy in history here for by the Spider-Office. Now, I mean, to their credit, this one is called Gang yes, War. Yes, it, so it is called like, Gang War, although I would add that Amazing Spider-Man... One fourteen, which was a uh, was that the second or third part of the Hammerhead Octopus War. It does have a quote on the cover referring to what's happening as a quote gang war between Doc Ock and Hammerhead, and that's the Jerry Conway John Ramita Sr. Uh, storyline, which other people consider the original Spider Man gang war. I mean, I would actually go one further, even though it wasn't called a gang war. I'm just going to keep using quotes. Finger quotes. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 26 and 27, which is, uh, you know, one, one of the Ditko uh, collection issues that I bought was uh, Amazing Spider-Man 27. That is the Green Goblin Crime Master slash Big Man Gang War. To, I th- consider that the first true spider-man gang war storyline you know it's 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 warring factions of the criminal underworld and spider-man in the middle that's kind of where i feel this idea had its genesis uh you know do, do, do you have any further uh, illustration to the, any of that dan
0: no i think that's all very very accurate and well said you could maybe argue that the scale of the events that we've gotten to but the one ongoing now and the one that we're talking about today are of like a measure bigger, you know, like the one in, you know, the Dicko era is like two different gangs. If you even want to call it that, like it's kind of mostly, you know, crime master fighting and his goons fighting against the green goblin singular. I don't think the green goblin has goons at that point. So like, it's maybe a gang skirmish, (laughs) you know, I mean, look by amazing Spider-Man 114, we've got like hammerhead going after nuclear weapons. So, you know, like it's, it's, a, it's evolved from a gang war to like an international incident <laughs> and then a supernatural incident when he comes back as a ghost. Fair enough. I, I don't disagree with that, but I also wouldn't begrudge them for saying that this is the first like official gang war in the pages of Square. Yeah,
1: I mean like like we said earlier. I mean we have like there's Hammerhead and Kingpin and Rose and Hobgoblin and there's a lot of Jack o' lantern, there's a lot of warring factions here and there's like kind of even factions of heroes too. And it's and you know, just to kind of drive further like the scope of the story, it, it it actually ties into uh what I would consider A far more popular and well-written storyline, Born Again, by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli course, that's in you know the, the Daredevil series from uh, the mid-1980s. And where it all kind of connects together is that by the end of that storyline, when Matt Murdock kind of resurrects himself and is, as the story says, born again, he uh, basically chases the kingpin out of civilized society, <laughs> if you will, kind of pushes him into hiding because he kind of exposes him as a fraud and a criminal. Where ASM picks up, in terms of gang war, is, you know, now all, you know, Similar to what we have with Tombstone and Hammerhead in the current uh, comic storyline, all of these warring underworld factions are kind of vying for Wilson Fiss's like piece of the pie of of running New York's underworld.
0: So that mentioning gang war and born again in the same sentence should be (laughs) a crime. Like. They are not even remotely care- like uh, comparable in regards to quality. But uh, yes, it, you're right. It is a it is a sequel of sorts. I feel like yeah. Amazing Spider-Man: Gang War is like what
1: Frank Miller would write if he wrote Born Again in like 2012 or something. Like,
0: <laughs> you know I mean? like, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, that's my shot at Frank Miller. Uh, lo- long live Frank Miller. Anyway, but it is worth noting too that um, the storyline did advance the um, Hobgoblin mystery quite a bit here. I don't know. I I don't know if you got a different reading from this, Dan, but like, you know, it's it's worth noting, as we said in our, our, our Hobgoblin episode last season, you know, DeFalco more or less Intentionally misled Jim Owsley about the identity of the Hobgoblin because he didn't trust him and and told him it was Ned Leeds, even though Ned Leeds was kind of being set up to be a red herring. And red and Richard Fisk was supposed to be the Hobgoblin, uh, aka the Kingpin's son. This storyline very pointedly looks at Ned as the Hobgoblin here. I mean, there's even let me for context. The reason behind that was. Ned's wife Betty Brant, that that minx was having an affair with Flash Thompson. I mean, this whole thing. I mean, and and to be fair, this storyline was started with the Falco and friends. But this whole thing, like you know, like talk about like kind of
0: retrospectively cringy, right? The thing that makes me laugh the most about this is that she in this story is like having an affair. With Flash Thompson, and then Ned goes to Peter and he's like, "I need your help. You've always been a trustworthy friend." And it's like, "Wait a yeah. minute! <laughs> he cheated on Betty like two. Yeah, like, yeah. why would you trust this guy? Like, Peter's no no better than Flash Thompson. You well, know? Well, that that story. Uh, but, to be fair, that
1: storyline's been mind wipes from uh, the continuity too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that there's there's did that, that happen. Yeah. Marv Wolfman didn't know what he was talking about, right? Um, but, yeah.
0: Yeah. Ned Ned was under the Winkler device when he was saying all this because like I don't know what he's talking right. about but right. all right but,
1: there, but there's even a scene where like Betty walks in on the hobgoblin unmasked and she faints at the side of him which indicates it's someone she intimately knows uh, also Ned is like being like super shady with like the with the daily bugle like he's like Robbie Robbie is all like hey where's your story and he's like I don't got it but I got a big one it's in Europe I just need like a month you know <laughs> like, like just give me like I mean like it's like is this guy gambling like what, what, what is happening here like it's like i know a guy i know a guy uh and he's he's, and of course like ned going overseas for this assignment leads to his eventual death quotation marks uh in spider-man versus wolverine which is another pre-storyline of course yeah, that that was kind of the hobgoblin story here. And then it-, it
0: is important to note Roderick Kingsley shows up here after being out of the book for quite some time, like many years. And he's got a couple of brief moments here which, you know, I imagine was meant to set up him as like the Rose or like to play it out in that direction even though like or or to hint at that because that was like tom defalco's original plan who can really say like the way that this story is jumbled together in terms of creatives which we haven't really covered yet which is like ron and tom are out after the first issue and you know th- the rest is just a mess and so yeah you do get things like a random appearance of Roderick kingsley here it does very much point the finger at ned being the hobgoblin
1: yeah. Now, meanwhile, you know, the character that was supposed to be the Hobgoblin during the DeFalco Friends run, Richard Fisk, uh, he's revealed as the Rose, which, like, look, like, you know, no disrespect to, to Tom and Ron, you know, who actually meant to make... Roderick Kingsley the Rose, which made sense, too, because Kingsley was a fashion designer and, you know, the rose is like this well-coiffed villain who is obsessed with beauty and obviously pruning roses, as the name applies. But, like, I don't necessarily, from a storyline standpoint, think making Fisk the Rose was a bad choice either because it kind of creates this bit of like an edible struggle between him and his father over warring factions of gangland territory. So I, 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 you know, I, I don't necessarily ding this story for,
0: for, for that per se. Do you have any thoughts on that? No. I mean, I think we talked about this with the Heinz brothers when we were discussing the Rose in our villain episode. Is that like, I like the Rose as Richard Fisk. I, I think that's a cool character. Like, I don't really think Richard Fisk makes sense as the hobgoblin. Like, you know, like I don't see that kind of unhinged like uh, a thing. I mean, I guess you could say that's the result of the goblin formula, eventually turning him crazy, but like, it's much more interesting that the Rose is Fisk than Kingsley. But like at this point, Kingsley being anybody is kind of uninteresting. It would take Stern in the nineties to make Kingsley an actually interesting character.
1: Yes, we didn't see Fisk as a hobgoblin type character. But part of the reason, according to uh, both back issue and then interviews we've had with Tom and Ron, they they claim that they they had stuff that pointed the finger more directly at Fisk as being the hobgoblin that was, quote unquote, left on the cutting room floor by Owsley. So whatever. The point being, we will we, we'll never know, I guess is the bottom line.
0: <laughs> um, but but yeah, so the, the, the point. More so that Roger Stern is a genius for like cutting through all of this and making sense out of it.
1: Oh, 100%. But that was, that was last series, uh, last season's episode. Let's talk about the nonsensical part. But, but I will say too, like, in addition to not minding this reveal, like this is, I, I actually think the very, the very Fisk focused issue of, and you know, Rose focus issue was one of the better ones of this story. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that uh, storyline introduces?
0: Oh, sure. Well, so like by the third issue of this story, like it's very clear that this is no longer Tom DeFalco and Ron Francis plan for, for this story. And, And frankly, this is where I check out of the gang war story. As much as I agree with you, there are some interesting character drama being written in this and I think the only character that really comes out of this story with an interesting through line is Richard Fisk as the Rose but like by part 3 of this book it starts com- like focusing on a completely different story that in many ways I think isn't interested in a gang war at all like <laughs> it's, it's it's just kind of like And this is what Richard Fisk is going through in his life. Like there's a scene where he's like in central park and he picks up a girl named Dina and she like spends the night with him and discovers that he's the Rose, which like, I I remember reading this for the first time and going like, did I miss an issue? Like (laughs) who is this character? Why are we focusing this way? The writing style changes dramatically, which isn't to say it's not like an interesting, like, viewpoint into the life of like a playboy mafioso type that can is handsome and can go to the park and thinks of women as disposable in some way. And, you know, and he's doesn't really care that she discovers his secret identity because he doesn't think much of her. Like there's something really interesting in that. Like even the reveal of the Rose is just like her walking through the apartment and seeing the mask on like this little holder for it. It's like a very casual reveal, which is like, frankly kind of refreshing, but we also get this focus on this new cop that's uh, from, well, it's actually introduced in Owsley's own Falcon series named Francis Torque. And if you're just reading amazing Spider-Man, you're like, who the heck is this guy? Why are we (laughs) focusing on this like madman cop named Francis Torque? And then like additional heroes start to join in like the Falcon and daredevil and black cat and black cat in her new really strange costume which would never appear again it really takes a hard shift into a completely different story that is much more interested in like following up Born Again than it is in being a Spider-Man gang war story and that's where it loses me you go from the kind of like cartoonish fun hammerhead story you know of these warring gangs to something very like interested in the fisk of it all And as much as I find that's very interesting, it it loses me. I'll admit it. This is where the story loses me every time. I'm like, what book am I reading? Gotcha.
1: Well, you know, I know just the storyline to get your attention back on, which is this weird kind of love triangle of sorts that's uh, insinuated there. You mentioned that Felicia Hardy is back uh, in Spider-Man's life after they kind of had a separation of sorts after Peter... Uh, unveils his identity to her uh, and she's like horrified to know that there's a man under that mask the 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 closening of Peter and Mary Jane Watson that was started uh, during the DeFalco and Friends run that's kind of continued here but then there's this very you know they're not living together but like MJ's over a lot and at one point she kind of walks in on Peter and Felicia after they're spending the night together and they kind of have you know MJ and Felicia kind of have this confrontation of sorts. Felicia is very like dismissive and arrogant about, which is kind of funny, actually. Then Peter talks about how he loves MJ like a sister. No, that's not here. Uh, <laughs> he, instead, he justifies. He's he's like, I feel a little bad about this, but it's not like me and MJ are exclusive or even official in any kind of way. It's just weird, Dan. Did you have any thoughts on that or do we want to keep moving?
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's kind of scummy in the way that like the Peter Betty Brandt and Peter, uh, you know, Debbie stuff is, you know, and it's like, you know, anybody that's trying like, you know, like, th- I mean, it'd be what one- I-, I would like to say this is written out of character for Peter, but like writers wrote him this way for a long time. And to me, it's like a remnant of writing Peter like the like love triangle stuff is still kind of alive in the pages of this book. And maybe it's that we have like hindsight bias that like he's about to get married to Mary Jane in very short time. So for him to act this way is really kind of like yuck. And I know we talked about this with, you know, Brad and Lisa on our Mary Jane uh, episode this season, but like put this one in the cap of like, these creators were not prepared to marry him off. I mean, I mean, Owsley Priest has gone on the record saying that he thinks the pairing of the two as a married couple was the worst idea ever, at least when he wrote that blog entry we referred to earlier in 2002, whatever, that's 21 years ago, that opinion can drink now, but like I I doubt he changed his opinion on that and writing like this in the pages of this book only further underlines that whether you agree with him or disagree with him. In terms of other conflicts
1: of, of familiar characters that the storyline, uh, I don't want to say introduce, but uh, advance, uh, we kind of had an obligatory Spider Man versus Punisher. Storyline, which also you know included Punisher wanting to like blow everyone up with a bazooka in at one part, which was just absurd, but you know very ombre for the Punisher, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man being like, "Whoa, okay, no bazookas, man." (laughs) I mean, I I actually liked this. I'm not, I'm not trying to be like a revisionist history, Dan, and coming across like I actually like the story, but I did like the Spider-Man Punisher part of this whole thing. I don't know. Do you, do you, you have, did you have any opinion on it or no?
0: <laughs> I think it's fine. I think it's weird coming on the heels of like the Sin Eater story that like Punisher finds a way to fit in here. I, I do think the moralizing of this comic is like all over the place. Moments later, as you'll, uh, you can detail for us, Spider-Man tries to like kill Kingpin and, you know, and it's like, wait a minute. Like, yeah, it's not very different than what Punisher was trying to do, right? But then Daredevil um,
1: inter- interferes with it. You know, this is this is. One of the first significant Spider Man Daredevil interactions since their tensions flare during the death of Gene the Wolf. It's also worth noting that like, you know, at the end of that they they reveal their identities to each other. And man, Daredevil just loves to leverage the fact that he knows who Spider-Man oh, is like, constantly. I mean it's just like, hey, <laughs> hey Pete, you know, like showing up at his house, like what's Daredevil doing here, Pete? Uh uh, you know, like it's it's bizarre, man. And and it's also like in terms of the moralizing, it's all all over the place because yeah, Daredevil, you know, similar to Gene DeWolf stops Spider-Man from going too far with Kingpin. But then like, there's this whole, like the final chapters of this uh, storyline kind of involve like Spider-Man being like, we got to bring Kingpin to justice. This guy's a criminal. And Daredevil is like, yeah, or do we need to bring him back and let him kind of run the underworld just to keep everyone else in check and it it, it, it's this really like kind of downer nihilistic view of superhero dumb where like spider-man kind of comes across as the naive do-gooder uh who's constantly you know i i think the analogy is lucy in the football with charlie brown you know like like he like all these other heroes are just like you know playing off of spider-man's naivete and and pulling the football away from him every time he's about to like apprehend a real criminal all under the guise of like hey we need these bad guys to exist to just kind of keep order in the world. And I mean, you know, there's there might be some truth to that, but man, that is just like a depressing view of a superhero comic in my opinion. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it makes them into kind of like custodians of the status quo in, in a way. And, you know, we're getting some of that in, you know, the Zeb Wells run right now with like Spider-Man, like kind of keeping a close eye on Tombstone. But I don't think it's handled with nearly the deftness of, of Wells's pen in the beginning of his run. And like, boy, does like Matt Murdoch's opinion of Kingpin really stand us apart from his opinion of Kingpin in Born Again. You know if this is going to be a follow up to that. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like let it be said that in Born
1: Again, you know, the superior story too, there, Fisk like destroys Murdoch's life, and it's 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 meant to be very dramatic, very traumatic for for Matt. And you know, like that storyline is about him coming all the way back from the dead. You know, the dead being is just his his character and his his moralizing and his his will to be a hero. I mean, like I always think of that wonderful image of Daredevil in the fire, uh, you know, kind of emerging from the flames. That you know, in the, in the costume, in the flesh, and it's just like this most powerful, one of the most powerful visuals in comic book history. I would call it. You know, all because of his desire to get revenge on the Kingpin, and then it's just like by the time you know a few months later, we're in Amazing Spider-Man. Matt's just like, nah, you know, whatever. He can, he can, he can do it. It's fine. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's okay. I, I had insurance on that house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So pretty wild stuff. Uh, Mark, we're going to talk more about our thoughts on this storyline and its legacy but uh, after a break here. But if people want to jump in the conversation, why don't you tell us about where they can do so? Yeah, you bet, Dan. Well,
1: hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Dan, what the heck is happening in the Slack this week?
0: Well, Mark, like this episode suggests, it's all about gang war. You know, gang war on the podcast, but gang war in the reviews, gang war in the Slack. And uh, everybody has just been really fired up about Uh, Dare I say it, Mark, uh, the incredible quality of the ongoing gang war storyline. You know, as much as we may suggest this first gang war wasn't that great, this new one is really living up to the potential. And um, everybody's just having a great time theorizing about it in there and discussing the ins and outs and throwing up the map over and over again and, uh, you know, pitting different gangs against each other. So if you are hyped about this Spider-Man event for this year, the first one, I think, to really deliver in quite some time. I mean, maybe I'm just hyper fixating on how bad Dark Web was. Come hop into our Slack and uh, join in the conversation. There's a link in the description of this episode that you'll click on. It'll let you sign up in less than a minute. Give it a name, your email, and boom, you are in the Slack and, and joining us in conversation. Uh, so speaking of conversation, Mark, let's get back to talking about the first quote unquote gang war in the pages of Spider-Man. I mean, we said we we're going to talk about our thoughts on the storyline and its legacy. I mean, gang wars are something that seemed to be evergreen in the pages of Spider-Man, whether it's labeled as gang war proper or not. We've got a bunch, we've had a bunch of them uh, over the years, but let's talk about this one and then talk about gang wars. Generally, you know, I think we've said it, but what are some of your like thoughts about this particular story? I, I know that I've kind of g- given some half-hearted praise to
1: elements of this story in, in you know, the aforementioned parts that we were discussing here, but like, you know, overall, like this is, this is just not a great story. Uh, I would even go as far as to say, it's not a good story. You know, I don't, I wouldn't even say that it gets a ton of notoriety or attention. Although like, like you said, it, it, it is considered, I think, because of the scope of it, one of the first big, like, all-encompassing gang war stories. So, like, it it, it gets a nod for that. But, like, it's also worth noting that so much of this, even putting aside, like, some of the individual writing and artistic flaws of it, it, it just feels very irrelevant and unimportant in retrospect because, like, you know, A, a lot of it, like, played out you know, against the original creator's wishes, you know, like, you know, say what you will about whether, you know, like, do, do creators have ownership over certain storyline elements? You know, certainly I'm sure Zeb Wells is doing things differently than Nick Spencer intended with some of his creations and on and on and on. I mean, you know, that's part of the, the, the game, but I mean, like this was a Tom DeFalco Ron friends plot that Owsley took over and then changed. They did not agree with those changes, so like I think that that is part of what kind of colors my opinion of it. But then, frankly, you know, as you alluded to earlier, Roger Stern, especially with the Hobgoblin part, came on ten years later and and retconned most of this and and retconned it in a way where it was much much better, <laughs> much more clarity. Things made sense, and and I feel like it's kind of accepted uh, as as the the one true source of truth for Spider-Man storytelling involving a lot of these characters. So like, you know, not only is it not good reading it in an, in an objective sense, it's just been proven irrelevant. So like I, I, you know, yeah, we're talking about it. So it has a legacy because we're still talking about it. But at the same time, it's like, there's a part of me that's like, why do we still talk about the story?
0: <laughs> I, I think it's the reason we still talk about it is because the promise is there. Like, Especially as set up by those early Ditko issues, which is like Spider-Man works really well in a grounded, you know, scenario going up against like regular thugs and and mobsters and stuff like it's an exciting place to be, you know, and you mix a couple supervillains in, you know, I think even about the end of Superior with all the Goblin Nation stuff and you know, all the different gangs there, like, and, and even all the way back to master planner and the gang that, that Otto has, like, there's ways to like, both make it grounded and incorporate villainry and uh, include New York, which, you know, is a very distinct location for Spider-Man. Like the promise of a gang war is ever present, you know? And so people want to return to this. And as this was the quote unquote first one, it, Retained some kind of like license to being the first, but I think that's honestly all the memory people have for it. I don't think any of the beats of the story, as you said, or, which were retconned most of them, have any kind of lasting power in the minds of Spider Man readers, yeah. And and then you know,
1: like, frankly, the other issue I, I have with this comic among many is you know, like, outside of that one section with the rose, uh, which, like you said. Kind of reads very differently than the rest of this whole storyline. But like none of this feels like Priest writing it, even though he is writing it. He's like clearly not comfortable trying to thread the needle with what DeFalco and friends attended and him doing it. In large part, I have to assume, because of all of the editorial turmoil that's happening around the same time, he's probably just like, what the hell am I doing here? If you want to get a sense of, like, what does Christopher Priest's Spider-Man story sound like, I think Spider-Man Wolverine is, like, the quintessential version of that. There's kind of this darkness. Priest loves playing with, like, the hero versus hero dynamic, which he does for a bit here, but I think with far more absurd results in Gang War. Uh, which we can get into in a short uh, bit. Um, but like, you know, clearly, you know, it's worth noting Priest loved Peter David, even though apparently Jim Shooter did not love Peter David, according to that essay. And and part of the reason why sh- why Priest loved Peter David so much was he loved kind of his the darkness of his storytelling vis-a-vis Spider-Man. And and I feel like a lot of that is reflected in the stuff that Priest would write, both in Spider-Man vs. Wolverine and later on, after he was fired as a Spider-Book ad- editor, that's the other thing. Like it, it's 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 clearly a, a creator who's not comfortable in his own skin writing the story. There's nothing. I I mean I I didn't have issues with Kuppenberg's art per se, and I actually like it's kind of nice to see Larson come on the book. Like there's you know it's a very different kind of Eric Larson than what we would you know be used to later. But like I feel like Cuppenberg and Larson to a large degree are, are are kind of aping friends here, so it doesn't feel like a a, a visual. Uh, departure that much. But like, I don't know, like the story's just all over the place. He's trying to, you know, Priest is trying to write hoo-ha to Falco, can't do it. And you just get
0: this like total mess of a story. Yeah, I mean, I think for me that most comes out during the Daredevil stuff. I mean, we've we've made mention of like fat suit Daredevil, you know, which like, I'm sure I'm going to let you elucidate because I know it's like a favorite like you know thing to beat up on your part but like as silly as that is and you'll detail that in a moment it comes after like pages and pages of like heavy moralizing from Daredevil and Peter and uh and like a series of like scenes the whole scene of fat To daredevil is built on the idea of Peter being an idiot who's easily tricked. And we, the audience knowing that he's being tricked. And so it really keeps you at an arm's distance from Peter, who I would say also is horribly miswritten. uh, you know, uh, you know, going back to like Peter David's story and our complaints about, about um, the death of Jean DeWolf. I think it continues here to an even more absurd degree. But okay, Mark, you got to talk about Fat Suit Daredevil because, you know, it's going to be on the cover with Nick Cagnetti's artwork for this, (laughs) this episode. Like... Like let's really promote this moment for what it is, Mark. I mean, am I am I going to Gen X if I just
1: do like a get in my belly joke here or something? I mean, because that's it's, it's it's is that Gen X? I I I don't
0: even know. I, that might be millennial. Yeah, but yeah. Austin
1: Powers might be millennial at this point. But anyway, yeah, so so uh, for storyline purposes, what's happening here is as as you allude to, like, Daredevil is like Basically, playing Peter as a complete moron uh, throughout this entire storyline, and uh, they know that Spider-Man is gunning for Kingpin here because he feels like if he could just neutralize the Kingpin, he can like basically end the gang war. Like you know, like they're all fighting over Kingpin, so I'm gonna take I'm gonna take him out. Daredevil is working with the authorities, quote unquote, to to uh, quietly bring Fisk back into town so Fisk can kind of get. Everybody under heel. So to distract Spider-Man, Daredevil dresses up as Kingpin, which leads to this utterly absurd visual of like Spider-Man fighting Kingpin. And then like knocking his mask off and it's it's Daredevil with you know Daredevil's head with the Kingpin's, grow you know largest body underneath him. and you're just like like what is, like what is like the mechanics of this make no sense. like nothing about this makes sense. This is just stupid. like this is a stupid like 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 Dan like w- look, it's comics. a lot of silly things that happened in comics. You know, Aunt May was was uh, pretended to die and came back with a bomb in her brain. I I I would probably rank Norman dare-
0: Osborn grew a handlebar mustache and called himself Mason Banks. Yes,
1: yes. I mean, like the the list goes on and on, and yet I might rank Daredevil, Fat Suit. Top three dumbest things to ever happen in a Spider-Man comic, like it, it just makes no sense, and it's a visual gag, and it's not even a good one, especially because it is played with. I feel like it's played with seriousness, right? Like it's not yes, really played for, it it's not played for laughs. Like if it was, if it was, <laughs> if it was like a CGI Matt Murdock, like get in my belly, I would laugh at it. It's not that. It's just, <laughs> it's,
0: it's like utterly insane. Like I cannot. My 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 absolute favorite detail is that like it's not like when when you when we say that spider-man tears off the mask you'd think like okay it's gonna pull it off over his head but no he like digs into his face and removes his face yeah. like, like face-off style yes. and inside of the face is daredevil where matt Murdock wearing his daredevil mask yes so he's wearing a mask inside of i mean it is so absurd and like like if you haven't seen this image, like I'm sure on the YouTube version it's on screen right now. But like if if you're listening to the podcast, do yourself a favor and Google Fat Suit Daredevil. Like it 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 will it will deliver on the promise of the laugh that was not intended, because you're right, Mark, it is played with dead seriousness. Yeah, all time like top three for sure. Like because this meant to be the culminating, like, betrayal moment of the entire, like, gang war. You know, like, like th- this is it. I I don't want to necessarily use this moment to kind
1: of, like, bring up, like, modern complaints about Spider-Man. But, I, like, let me just say right here, Dan, like, there are a lot of people out there that kind of refer and, and are reverential about this era of Spider-Man comics. It's like the glory days of, 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 of Spider-Man, which is true to... A certain degree with certain stories, uh, and that today's stories, you know, Peter the Cuck being very cringy. I mean this is this 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 takes anything that came out of uh dead languages and and topples it in terms of cringe. Like this is this is this is absurd. Like it's 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 cringe, it's absurd. It it there is nothing glorious about any of this here. Like this is this is just bad comic book storytelling. I you know sorry sorry to all the people involved very irredeemable, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> well, time has a way of erasing bad stories and letting us just remember the good ones. You know, which is to say, like, let let me, like, weighing in on my thoughts on this, let me like praise something about it, which is I said that the Rose storyline was pretty good. He has this kind of interesting, like, subplot about like how, you know, he doesn't want to get his hands dirty in all of this, right? He'll send his minions out to do all these things. But ultimately he's really not like physically hurting people himself. He's really going after his father and the whole Vanessa Fisk of it all. But there is a moment where the gang war is riling up and Richard Fisk as the Rose finds himself caught up in the activities of the gang war and he is kind of cornered. And has to use a firearm and ends up killing a man. I think the way that that scene is staged visually is really brilliant and beautiful, and is a really interesting moment for that character. You know, it's a moment that has no history to back it up because we only just found out about like any any characteristics of the rose in these pages. But within the story that Priest is writing, I do think the rich like the Richard Fisk you know, fall from grace in both his own eyes and his father's eyes and Vanessa's eyes is really interesting in that he has taken a life of a young policeman. And so I, I find that really interesting and, and the one real redeeming moment for this story that I otherwise, like, I think this is one of my least favorite Spider-Man stories ever. I'm probably a little bit biased in that, like, I hold up the Ron Friends, Tom DeFalco run is a real like sweet spot for my enjoyment of Spider-Man. So to see it so like, like kneecapped in what should have been like a really proud moment for them, Uh, like, you know, a big, like epic Spider-Man story, unlike what they had been doing or been allowed to do up to this point, not to say they didn't have great stories, but like this was a really one leveraging their love of Spider-Man and his supporting cast and all the stories that they had been working on for the entire run to culminate in here. And I feel just as angry about it as I do like looking at like something like dead languages where I have to assume like the Kamala Khan stuff was not the top choice of Zeb Wells to put it in the book. Like you've got a defining story that suddenly has to meet other needs. It's much worse here because they were kicked off the book. I, I That makes me mad. But I like when I read it, the problem with it, like, is when I read it, it doesn't feel like it's interested in gang war. What it feels like is an expression of inner office politics hitting the page, and it feels like angry Jim Owsley, Christopher Priest, going, "Ha, you're gone. Let me fix all the things that I thought were wrong about the book in short order." And so, like, it feels like such a one eighty. I don't know that there's very many places in the pages of amazing Spider-Man comics where it really truly feels like someone going like, like not saying yes. And just going, no, I'm going to do things my way. That's what really stands out to me is so ugly here. Like the forced character introductions of all these other side characters that find their way into the book. Not only does it feel like disruptive to the narrative you're reading, you're like, why, who are these people? Why am I caring about them? It really like knowing their history with Jim Owsley. It's like, it just feels gross, and I just don't enjoy reading the story. I I, I feel icky reading this story. I, I I don't know any other way to put it. I feel very
1: much the same. I mean, like you know, me me going on and on about Fat Suit Daredevil is just in my own way trying to. I don't I don't want to say bring levity to this, but just kind of like you know, even putting aside like the 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 moral reasons to dislike this story that you just so masterfully said i mean like just within the books themselves it's just there's just some terrible storytelling elements so like you know if if you have your poetry dan yeah.
0: i'll have my fat suit daredevil that's go. what there you're, you go. you're saying yeah well no, I was just gonna say, like, if, if
1: if if priest thought if priest thought like he was making things better in doing this, which I think he did, like I would I would just wanna check that with him. I mean, you know, again, he was very gracious in talking to us, so I don't want to make it sound like we're burning a bridge or anything, but like, you know, like I, I wouldn't necessarily be proud of uh some of this the way things came about. Not because of how he treated Tom and Ron, but just because it's just not great storytelling. He would t- he would tell much better stories on Black Panther. How about we put it like that?
0: I mean, I think he would tell better stories on Spider Man versus Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. No, we talked about how much we liked that story, and um, and and I would say like I don't think that he would entirely disagree with us. You know, like uh, if you read that blog entry, it 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 does read like someone who is truly apologetic for who they were at the time. Well well also I think like really illuminating situations I think we've all been in which is when you have a boss that is breathing down your neck sometimes that gets passed on to people below you, you know, like I think it's a very common working situation that where of like a toxic work culture that finds its way into everyone's lap.
1: Yeah, and 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 frankly like, you know, I think you just hit on I think the larger thing at hand here that we really don't talk a lot about throughout this season. And, you know, obviously we had uh Jim Shooter on our podcast uh a little more than a year ago when I was at Terrificon in twenty twenty two. Um uh, but like, yeah, I mean this is I think a lot of this was a as much as it's a reflection on some of the the this dysfunction in the Spider Office, I think it's it's reflective of more of the larger dysfunction at Marvel at this period, and that dysfunction stemmed from what Jim Shooter did. And you know, re, you want you want you want the full scope of you know Jim Shooter's reign. I would just read the uh, Untold Tales of Marvel book by um, uh, Sean Howe, and I, I think that book kind of illuminates it masterfully. Uh, Dan, do we want to talk a little bit about kind of the legacies of gang wars as a whole um, and, and kind of their place in the Spider-Man
0: mythos. Like, you know, just kind of get off the, get off the dourness here. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, which is like, I think the promise of a gang war is ever present in the pages of Spider-Man. And frankly, I think a lot of people like have been begging for a long time for Spider-Man to move more back towards the street level affairs some writers find really, you know, good use for it. Like I didn't love the way that Goblin Nation played out, but I thought that uh, Dan Slott's like playing into like the Goblin's original motives of controlling the city and and stuff like that is only to the book's benefit. You know, if you can ground these super heroics and super villainy in an ultimate quest for power in Manhattan. I think that's a great place for, for Spider-Man to be, you know, I think even back to like brand new day and, you know, menace and how that was a political quest and it may not have been a gang war, but like, to me, anytime you can put a real world stakes on the event of Spider-Man and, you know, no better way to do that than a big flashy gang war, you know, I I think makes a lot of sense. Now, whether that is the, the, the full fruit of that tree has ever truly bloomed you know is yet to be seen and and frankly i hope this new gang war story is the one to do it but i don't know what what do you think i mean we had so many of these kinds of stories over the years between the lobos brothers or you know or even spiral i'm mentioning mostly just jerry conway comics you know what what do you think about gang wars i I would say putting
1: aside this gang war I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna flex my my geography here dan Kind of like New York City uh, pizza. Even like mediocre Spider-Man Gang Wars are pretty good. Spider uh, are pretty good Gang Wars. You know, it's like you know, like like mediocre New York pizza is still good pizza. Yeah, you know, that's the that's the analogy there for people not following. I I like I, I It's it's uh you know I did a a quick little top five list on Instagram about favorite Spider-Man Gang Wars, and the fact of the matter was like I had a hard time choosing among the five because i feel like you know you just mentioned like the lobo brothers lobo brothers gang war spiral uh you know there's owl octopus wars which we talked about last season uh obviously there's the original hammerhead doc ox storyline there's the the crime master storyline that we talked about goblin nation had elements of a gang war to it uh you know like it's a good well to go to i i you know i you know I agree with you. I don't know if anyone has truly hit the concept out of the park, but I also don't feel like outside again, outside of this one that they have like completely missed the mark. And, 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 and for the record, I don't think the reason why this one doesn't work is because it's a gang war. I think it doesn't work because of all this dysfunction. I think if they just told the story of a gang war, it would be a totally fine story. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't go in that direction. What I, do you, what do you want out of a good gang war story? the seeds of it are kind of coming to fruition in our current one, which is like, I love the idea of kind of like, you know, a city in chaos, you know, people, you know, blood on the streets, you know, victims, both high, uh, high stakes and low stakes involved. I, I think that's important. Like, th- I, I think that's part of it too. It's like this idea of like, okay, these, these different criminal elements are warring. So what? So like you got to You got to apply some stakes to it. So like you know, sure, maybe, maybe having Hammerhead pursue nuclear weapons is a little, you know the stakes are a little skewed. Aunt May's
0: nuclear weapons. <laughs> right. Let's be clear. Yeah, fair. Yes.
1: <laughs> but like you know, certainly here, you know, like I feel like. Spiral did a good job of this in terms of like you know even though it's a kind of like a, a a sidebar story in 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 Spider-Man mythology at the time. I mean it's like you know we're dealing about dealing with the Wraith and Captain Watanabe and 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 like her moral journey and 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 I I I, I guess that's part of it is I I I need to feel like something is lost potentially in the gang war and something you know like where can Spider-Man either redeem himself or others or, or or what have you like like th- there needs to be a journey for Spider-Man to kind of rectify it I feel like this current one is being set up because of both Randy but also frankly like the relationship with Miles and and the 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 rules put in place from Wilson Fisk about superheroes like there's a lot of high stakes elements involved here uh, and I and I feel that makes it a good one Our Octopus Wars I think is an excellent one because the stakes in that case are Felicia and then you know Spider-Man thwarting the Doc Ock and Doc Ock being so vengeful that he's like, you know, like, even more than usual, ready to just murder Spider Man, and like you know, like that 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 great scene that we talked about where they're like falling out of the window, and it's like you know, Spider Man basically is like seeding the fact that this could be it for him, like like you know, like Oct- you know, Otto is that enraged that this could be the end of Spider Man, and like those are the stakes that I think need to be a part of a gang war. It's not just like oh, everyone's fighting and you know, bullets and whatnot. It's 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 got to be like what why. Why are we pulling Spider Man into it? Why do we care about it? Um we don't get that in Owsley's Gang War. Um, but I do feel we're getting it now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head with the the idea of like high and low stakes or like high concept, low concept coming together. You know, you you've got the greatest stage of them of them all, like New York City, and maybe like interpersonal drama that plays out you know, writ large across the city. Um it's even why I like you're going to cringe at this, but why I like uh, like a book like Spider-Man Rain, because it does really create a pressure cooker in New York City with all of these gangs and factions that are and Spider-Man has to thread that needle or or cut the Gordian knot or what, you know, whatever it is. It's it's kind of like the one time that Marvel's New York City becomes Gotham, uh, you know, in a way, in a way that a great Batman story like often has like a dozen villains in it and he's bouncing, you know, he's the only person capable of doing it. You know, Spider-Man is maybe less capable uh, uh, in in that regard. And so I think it allows it to be like murkier and grayer and in, in the Spider-Man thing. And there's a real potential there for like him to kind of become Batman of a sort and, and be the guy that can solve it in some way, whatever that is and push him up against the wall and, you, you're you right to mention spiral and how it really uh, you know it, there is a that large scale but it really is the war for wraith's heart and whether or not you know you know yuri will go one way or the other and and become a villain uh, uh or an anti-hero and and fall from grace and you know again i think we're seeing that in in this one let like you mention felicia in al octopus but here we're seeing it again with the 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 tombstone family so yeah i i i think we've gotten really close and i am hopeful that this new one sticks the landing because i think it could finally like do that giant you know thing that we've been hoping for 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 so long i'm always up for a gang war mark all right well anything else you want to say about this or do we want to do we want to end our season on a high note I think I think it's time to go out strong, uh, and by that I'm saying that I've secretly been the rose the entire time. Oh
1: my goodness! And I I am hammerhead, except it's shiny head, uh, although not as shiny as yours. But uh. <laughs> and, you know, I, I take
0: great care in making sure my bald head is very shiny.
1: Ah, love you, Dan. All right. Well, it's that time. Time for all good things to come to an end, including the season. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers for tuning in to this episode and to season six of the amazing spider talk.
0: Can you believe it, Mark? We pulled one off in less than six months. Uh, <laughs> this is a, this is a record for us. Thanks everybody for listening to to the season. We uh, put a lot of hard work into the season and uh Uh, We've been hearing good things from you guys. That's been rolling out. So we hope you enjoyed the ending. And as always, if you enjoyed this season or anything that Mark and I do, A lot of hard work goes into putting these shows together, and we can only do it because of listener support on our Patreon. So for only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including new Amazing Spider-Man reviews the same week they release, exclusive artwork like the one you see on this very episode with Fat Suit Daredevil, And a ton of other bonuses. I mean, come on. You want to get that Nick Cagnetti fat suit daredevil artwork. Uh, So, again, thank you to everyone who already supports us in the work that Mark and I do. To download our earliest
1: episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Jim Shooter, and heck, even Christopher Priest also known as Jim Owsley and many more subscribe to our amazing spider talk back issues podcast on Apple podcasts.
0: Yeah, this podcast was edited by Rick coast. The video version of this show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galecki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists, Ron friends, Sal Buscema and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton and spider Madge, And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. Just another reminder, everybody, if you want to get all of our gang war coverage or all of our coverage of anything Spider-Man related that we couldn't squeeze into our shows, check out our amazing Spider-Talk Substack. It's amazingspider.substack.com and click there to subscribe and you'll get a newsletter in the mail every couple of weeks. And you can you know check out what Mark and I have to say about the entire web of Spider-Man related content. So, Mark. Until we see the first appearance of Daredevil in a fat suit in the MCU, what's our motto? Get in my belly! No, <laughs> it's with great podcasts.
1: There must also come the amazing Spider-Talk. Don't, don't
0: miss the next The more I think about it, the more I want to see that, especially if Vincent D'Onofrio gives the performance he did in Men in Black, like there's a bug inside of his body. Except this time it's Daredevil and he just is like demanding sugar water. I I want to see that sugar water on Daredevil.
1: (laughs) Terrible, Dan, but yeah, I'm in.